Acts. We'll get to there in a second. Um, but this series has been all about um, a, a kind of a study in comparative world religions. Um, and today, I kind of want to pivot um, and talk about what um, an author by the name of John Dixon calls the religious impulse that exists in all of us. Um, I'm going to talk about two ways that um, those of us in the West, especially Americans, try to avoid or distract ourselves from that religious impulse. And then I want to end the series by talking about why I think Christianity has a claim on every single person, regardless if you believe right now or you don't believe or you're not sure what you believe, or, or maybe you're just flat out distracted by whatever. Okay, so that's where um, we're going to go. What in the world is the religious impulse? Okay, um, uh, the author John Dixon um, talks about the religious impulse being this, um, this thing inside of all of us that drives us to find meaning and purpose, not in this life, not in ourselves, not in the people around us, but to find meaning and purpose in someone transcendent, someone outside of time, and space. And, and as far back in history as you can go, you see this religious impulse in people. Okay? Uh, this is a rock art from Western Australia. This is the oldest rock art that you can find. It kind of looks like a membership acceptance ceremony, doesn't it? Just people sitting there staring at you. This is, uh, this is the spirit realm. This is people that they believe are spirit in the spirit realm. But in the rock art, and I'm only showing you a section of it, um, the spirit realm exists right alongside the physical realm. Okay, so the, the, the aboriginal tribes, the indigenous people of Australia, they believed that there was something out there. There was something transcendent beyond them. That, that existed in their physical world. But let's bring it to today. Uh, most recent Pew research out there um, still shows that about 80% of Americans will answer yes to the question, do you believe in God? Which leaves about 19% who say, no, I don't believe in God. But then they do a follow-up question to that, well, well, tell us the kind of God you don't believe in. And about half of that 19% who say, I don't believe in God, say, well, I believe that there is some higher power out there that kind of makes and moves the world. Which means about half of the self-proclaimed atheists in America aren't actually atheists, at least in the strictest sense. There's still some type of a religious impulse inside of them. Even more interesting to me, um, you go to some different studies that are done in China with children. And for those of you who know, in China, they don't really do much with teaching God in the school system. In fact, they kind of discourage it, right? But before kids even get to school, they have found, they already believe that someone makes and moves the world. It's not until they get into the school system that it's taught out of them. So the religious impulse is there, it's, and it's universal. It was the same way back in ancient Greece when Christianity arrived. Um, the Apostle Paul took a mission trip to Athens in about 50 AD, and in Acts 17, we're, found, we're, we're told that he found religion everywhere. Look at this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Most ancient Greeks believed in the gods that you learn about in world history in school. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, which was another religious option of the day, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And then he meets two other groups, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans believed in God, but they didn't believe he was active in the world. The Stoics also believed in God, but they believed he was active in the world. And he began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be abdicating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, a new religious option for them. 19, then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Areopagus. This was kind of like the high court of ideas there in Athens, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then Luke adds this little commentary for us. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they were so religious that they sat around talking about it all the time. Then... Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Pause. The Athenians were so religious that they had space reserved for gods they didn't know about yet. This was the just-in-case God. Okay, this was the just, let's cover all of our bases, God, right? What's my point? Religion is everywhere. Always has been, always will be. The percentage of, of people who are genuine atheists will always be very small. So what? So what? what, what, what here's the, the, this, despite the universality of religion, this impulse that's inside of us from the very beginning, many people still find ways to avoid the implications of that impulse. Because if that's true, if there is a God that provides meaning and purpose and life to you, how then should you live? And there are all kinds of people that find all kinds of ways to ignore that question. We distract ourselves. We avoid the question. And I just, I just want to talk about two. Two ways that I see people, especially in the West, trying to avoid this. Atheism and pluralism. Two completely different strategies. One is to deny the whole thing. The other is to embrace the whole thing. But either way, this is, this is a, 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 a strategy to avoid the implications of the existence of God. Okay, so let's start with atheism. Um, our Atheist friends, maybe family members, acquaintances, very, very often explain away the religious impulse by saying it's just a psychological crutch. Um, the reason all cultures have some kind of religion is because we're trying to meet these deep psychological needs. It's not, it's not logical, it's not intellectual, it's psychological. And so two ways that I've seen this, two ways that I've read um, that atheists go down this road. Number one, um, religion was developed to help us avoid the fear of death. Humans have always been scared of death, and so they invented a spiritual realm when you die. The problem with that is our earliest evidence of religion offers very little indication 
that they were ever interested in an afterlife. Even Judaism, up until about 1000 BC, right around the time of King David, had very little doctrine, very little, very little interest in the afterlife. It's not until the later prophets that you start to see a doctrine for the afterlife. The same is true with all the early religions. They weren't interested in the afterlife. So, um, the atheist will say, okay, maybe not the afterlife, but religion was certainly invented to meet the psychological need for morality. Like societies needed to behave and obey certain morals, so they invented superheroes who would punish them if they didn't obey. It's, it's, it's a psychological control mechanism to keep people in line. And again, uh, the, the pro- that's problematic based on the evidence that, that some of the earliest religions had no interest in morality at all. Yes, Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam absolutely has an interest in morality, but the ancient religions had no interest in that whatsoever. That was for the philosophers. That was a discussion in philosophy, not a discussion in religion. So, so the psychological explanation offered by atheism, it just doesn't really hold up under the evidence. And, and the evidence actually shows there's a growing body of research that suggests that this religious impulse that's inside of us doesn't come from psychology. It comes from a rational desire to explain the universe. So an example, if you've been around a toddler, you have heard the question why about a million times before eight o'clock in the morning, right? Why? Why is that? Why does it do that? And then you give them an explanation, but it's not good enough. But why? And then you give them another layer of explanation, and it's not good enough. And then you give them another layer of and it's why? 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 And, and, and we think we grow out of that, but we don't. It just becomes more sophisticated. Um, and, and the longer you ask why, the more likely you are to get to some of the fundamental why questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why, why is nature so rationally ordered and why can our minds detect that? Why do things live? Why do I live? We get to these questions of why. It's a rational need for investigation, a rational need for explanation. And, and I'm not making this up. There's a, there's a ton of research into this. There's a three-year three project, 57 researchers, conducting 40 separate studies in 20 countries. That's a massive research project. And here's the conclusion they came to. The natural default position seems to be for children to think a non-human someone or someones are the best explanation for the apparent purpose and order in nature all around. So what does that mean? Belief in God is there from the beginning. It's, it's not until later that it's explained away. That, that the belief, it seems to be the result of looking at the rational order of the universe and coming to the conclusion, the only genuine conclusion, the only genuine explanation for this is there's a rational mind behind it. Paul acknowledges this in Athens, okay? Before he even talks about Christianity, he talks about the, the, this, this thing that they've already stumbled across by themselves. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. The Stoics would have agreed with him on that. 
and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And then he points them to something they were familiar with. He uses a culturally relevant example. For in him, we live and move and have our being. He's quoting a Greek poet from 600 years earlier, Epimenides. And then he does quotes another one. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So pre-Christian, Greek philosophers looked at the universe and concluded, there's a rational mind behind this. There has to be a rational mind behind this. Now, I don't think Paul um, accepted the stories of Greek religion. I know he didn't accept the idols of Greek religion, but he did acknowledge the intellectual starting point that there is a rational mind behind the rationality of of nature. And it, it can only be explained that there's someone with a rational mind behind it in whom we live and move and have our being. So if you're an atheist, or maybe you're related to an atheist, here's the question. I'd simply ask you to look again. To look again. Take a second look. At the logic of God, it's not simple psychology. It's it's just not, it's rationality. And there are plenty of people way smarter than me that have talked about this. And I've got plenty of resources I'd love to give you if you want to, okay? That's atheism. Let me turn to another way that's a little bit more popular in the U.S. to avoid the religious impulse. It's not the rejection of it. It's the embracing of it all or pluralism. And the kind of pluralism that you hear about at work um, or on social media or your grumpy uncle at Thanksgiving who's read one or two more books than you, that kind of pluralism basically says all religions teach the same thing. They all teach the same thing. Um, And and again, if you look at this, if you look at the evidence of that claim, it's not true. They're, They're superficially similar but they're, they're substantially different. They, they, you know, they, they all, they have, they, they meet in different buildings on different days. They have different cultures, but they all basically teach the same thing. Give me, I'll give you two examples from the stuff that we've talked about over the course of this series. So example, what happens in the afterlife? What happens when you die? That's a very fundamental question that religion tries to answer. In Hinduism, Hinduism teaches that you have a soul, your Atman, Right? And your soul will be constantly reincarnated into a different body, into a different physicality until you do enough good or you think well enough to be able to to reattach, to be reabsorbed into Brahman, at which point you just don't exist anymore. You're just a part of Brahman. Buddha knew all about Hinduism and totally rejected that idea. He didn't believe in reincarnation at all. He, he taught this really complicated idea of rebirth where your, your physicality and your energy just kind of bumps along, not, not into a new being of you, but just into a different existence. But regardless of what he taught, it's not the, that's not the same thing. And then what about Judaism? Judaism teaches you live once, no reincarnation. You die, and then you're raised to be judged by God. Now, you don't need a degree in philosophy or theology to understand those ain't the same. Like one of them can't be true while the other one is true. They all cancel each other out. Let's go to an even more basic question. How many gods are there? 
That's a, that's a question you'd think that all religions could, could get on the same page about. Hinduism believes there are thousands of gods. Most Hindus will, will choose two or three that they will worship. Um, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, said there aren't thousands of gods and you don't get to pick. There's one. Remember last week, the central doctrine of Islam, Taweed, oneness. There's one God, and we don't fully know what Buddha thought about God, but he basically said there's no God worth worrying about. And again, you don't need a degree in mathematics to get all that to add up. If there's one, there can't be many. And if there's many, there can't be one. And if there's none, there can't be many or one. Pluralism. It doesn't make sense. All religions don't teach the same thing. So how is that a way of avoiding that thing inside of us? Because on the face of it, like I think this is why Americans love this idea. On the face of it, it looks so polite. On the face of it, it's so welcoming. Like, it's like, you know, it's unifying. Everybody's equal and let's all get a coexist bumper sticker and hug it out, you know? That's what it looks like. But the more you look at it, the more you realize pluralism is just lazy. It's just lazy. It's, it's saying they're all true in their own special way. I have my truth. You have your truth. Oprah has her truth. And everybody can have their own truth, right? So let me, let me put it like this. Imagine... You want to find out how to say I love you in Chinese. So you have a Chinese friend who comes to you and says, oh, that's easy. Um, you say, wo, ani. That's how you say I love you. Okay, good. Then you meet another Chinese friend who says, no, no, no. That's not how you say it. It's, it's wo, henni. And you're like, great. How do I figure this out? Well, one option is to spend about two minutes Googling it and figuring it out for yourself. Or you could go to the public library and you could get, you know, a Mandarin to English dictionary and, and do a little bit more work and a little more digging. But there's actually an easier option. There's, it's, it's much more economy of effort. You just say, they're both true in their own special way. Like maybe it's just a dialect variation. And there's only, there's only one difference, one syllable difference. How different can they be? And you just sit back, you don't bother investigating, and, and you move on happily believing they're both, they're both, they both say I love you. The problem is, wo I ni means I love you. Wo hin ni means I hate you. <laughs> Do you see the problem? So you could investigate the religions yourself. And it might take you a little bit more time. It's definitely going to take you more time than a three-week series that Pastor Tim spoon-fed you. It's going to take a little more energy, a little bit more time to figure it out. Or you could just go the pluralist route and just believe, well, they're all, they're all kind of true in their own way. Atheism and pluralism both do their best to avoid that thing in you that says there's something bigger than you. But the question still remains, why Christianity? Like maybe, maybe there's something to this universal hunch. It's not just psychology. Maybe all religions can't be the same. But like what does Christianity have above all the others? And I think that's an absolutely fair question to ask. And I think it's only fair that I conclude the entire series by answering it. Why am I so confident in the singular beauty 
of one faith system above all the others in the art gallery of religion? I'll answer that question with two words. Truth and beauty. Truth and beauty. Truth, the, truth, the question of truth takes us back to the passage in Acts 17. Paul says that this unknown God has entered history in a verifiable way. Acts 17.30, in the past... God overlooked such ignorance, talking about idol worship. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That sounds pretty universal to me. All people everywhere. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who is that man? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We're going to talk more about this at Easter in about a month and a half. But Paul is saying that the God of universal hunch has become an actor in verifiable history, which is important in our discussion because the, 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 the proof didn't happen in someone's dream. It didn't even happen in someone's vision. It didn't happen in a philosophical concept or even a holy book or a speculation. No, this happened in history, which is radically different from the kinds of claims in other religions. Because in Islam, we're asked to believe that the revelation of God came to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel when no one else was around. And you can believe that, as billions of people do. But you can't test it before you believe it. In Hinduism, uh, the sacred texts come from the dawn of time. We don't know who wrote them. We don't know where they come from. We don't know when they were written. They just exist, making all kinds of claims about your soul and reincarnation and Brahman. And you can believe it, as millions of people do. But you can't test it before you believe it. The same is true with Buddhism. The Buddha had his revelation one night in May while meditating under a Bodhi tree where he saw all the truths of the universe. And that was where he had his enlightenment and then he taught the world. And again, you can believe that, as millions do. But you can't test it before you believe it. Christianity claims something completely radically different because at the heart of Christianity is not a lone spiritual insight or philosophical speculation or a dream someone had. It, it, the heart of Christianity is not even a divine dictation and a holy book that you can't question. The heart of Christianity is a series of events that happened in dateable history with a multiplicity of witnesses inside and outside the New Testament that you can actually test, that you can actually investigate before you believe it. That is a radically different truth claim. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everything in Christianity can be verified. I'm saying the core beliefs can. We have the exact kind of data that you would expect to have if Jesus really lived, if he really taught, if he really healed, if he really died, and if he really rose. It's verifiable. Now, this point of, of difference gave great pause to one of the world's most influential atheists of the last generation. Uh, this is Antony Flew, 
He was um, a, a professor at the University of Reading in the UK. He is a massively important scholar in the world of philosophy. He wrote books upon books upon books about atheism that are still being used in universities today. And then he went and ruined the whole thing in 2007 when he wrote this book, There Is, Cross Out, No, A God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, I'm going to save you $13 and just tell you what he says in the book, okay? Here's his premise in the book. Here's what he basically says. Oops. That's what he says, okay? He says it in much nerdier philosophical language than that. But he basically says that, that, that the, the, the things that have happened in DNA research and the things that have happened in, in physics and the fine-tuning of how life came to be, all of that changed his mind about God. Here it is in his own very nerdy words. There exists a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent, and omniscient being. And I would have made that sound so much better with an English accent, but I decided not to. I got scared, okay? <clears throat> I just got scared. I nailed it in my office early this week, okay? But that's not even the most interesting part of this book. Because in the appendix, he asks a, a British historian by the name of N.T. Wright to write about a three to 4,000 word document on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay? Now you say, why in the world would an atheist have a historian write a chapter about the resurrection of Jesus in his book? Now, he doesn't say he believes it. I'll point that out. He doesn't say he believes it, but he wanted to include it because he said, if you want proof of this omnipotent being at work in history, this is probably the X marks the spot. Again, in his own words, if you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, it seems to me that this, Christianity, is the one to beat. This is the X marks the spot for the disclosure of God to the world. God has given proof of this, Paul said. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. That's from an atheist or former atheist. That's the truth part. What about the beauty? What about the beauty part? What do we see when we look at Christianity that's beautiful that you don't get anywhere in the, in the art gallery of religions? And if you've been with us throughout this series, you probably already know what I'm getting ready to say because I've already said it. Every other religion says you have to earn your way to salvation. Christianity says you can't, but God did. He came into this world in the person of Jesus, lived the life you couldn't live, gave that life up on the cross, the perfect sacrifice for sin, and then rose again to offer you forgiveness. This is the Christian doctrine of grace. And Paul, Paul puts it perfectly in an earlier speech in Acts 13. He says, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. What's so beautiful about grace? In the context of what we've looked at over the past few weeks, 
in what other belief system do you see God making amends for wrong you've done? What other belief system says that? Every other belief system says, no, 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 no. You have to make amends for the wrong that you've done. And even then, there's no guarantee. Only Christianity offers the idea that Jesus made amends for your wrongdoing. That's what he taught in Athens. And the amazing thing to me, and maybe this is exactly what you expect a pastor to say. The amazing thing to me, the response of those who heard that message in Athens, there were three responses. Some people sneered. They thought he was ridiculous. There are still people today who sneer and think this is ridiculous. Another group wanted to know more. They were curious. They wanted to hear more. Paul, will you come back and teach us more about this? There are still people today that are curious. And then the third group, they decided to put their trust in Jesus. They said, everything that our parents and our grandparents have taught us about the gods, we're going to replace all of that with the God who made amends for our wrongdoing. So what about you? What's your response? What's your response to grace? What's your response to the truth and the beauty of what Jesus has done in history? Whether you're an atheist, you're a pluralist, and maybe you didn't even know it, or maybe you're just flat out distracted, the invitation today is to come to Christ or come back to Christ. He is the only one full of grace and truth. And he is the only one that will lead you to the beauty of a life that is lived abundantly. Starts now and goes on forever. We already sang it, but I just want you to hear it again. Now he has come to make a way and God himself has paid the price. Let all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. Come to Christ. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand? God, of the thousands of words that I've said today, would your word reign supreme over all? God, for those who wrestle with, for those who aren't sure, for those who have become distracted, I pray that they might leave this place confident or maybe just curious enough to investigate, confident and dependent in what Jesus has done for them so they could have life and have it abundantly. We trust you with this. We believe in you with this. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we believe these things. It's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Have a wonderful week. You're dismissed.